This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. From 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 17. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. As uh, Damien has said, this is our second to last sermon through uh, 1 John, and we've entitled this series Confidence. We've also said over and over and over that the primary purpose of John in writing this letter uh, to the original audience uh, was to build or reestablish their confidence in what we're saying, uh, what we're calling Christianity. And what we mean by that is John wanted to bolster their confidence in Christ, uh, in Jesus, Uh, as the object of our faith in Christianity. And John also wanted to bolster their confidence, secondarily so, in the genuineness of their faith. So not just Jesus being worthy of faith, but the evidence in their lives that they were believing in him, trusting him, that they in fact had faith in him. Uh, The very first verse of our text, verse 13 of chapter five, explicitly states uh, this purpose of John's uh, in writing. He, He writes this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that, so it's a purpose clause, you may know that you have eternal life. Uh, Towards the end of John's gospel, that is uh, the fourth book in the New Testament, towards the end of that gospel, John writes to his readers this. He says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. In his name. So the Gospel of John, uh, to John, had an evangelistic purpose. He saw an audience that he wanted converted by the truths of Jesus. And so he said to them, My point in writing you is to get you to believe in Jesus, because when you believe in Jesus, you have life. In the same way, at the end of this letter, uh, John says, okay, look, this is my purpose in writing. It's not to convince you uh, that you need to believe in Jesus. It's to convince you, to assure you, to build confidence in you that if you believe in Jesus, you already have eternal life. So the gospel was evangelistic in nature. Uh, the epistle was pastoral in nature. By that we mean he's seeking to write these, these, to these doubting Christians and he, he's trying to confirm in them that their faith in Jesus now means that they have eternal life now uh, in Christ. And so as you can imagine, because this is the stated purpose of John in the letter, as you can imagine, pastors and scholars have through the years, literally through the centuries, uh, identified in this book the various indicators of faith, uh, the various realities uh, in a person's heart and life uh, that can prove that they're a a genuine Christian. Uh, pastors and scholars have said, if you're struggling with doubt, first and foremost, understand who Jesus is and secondarily, inspect your life for the evidence of faith. 
And so if you're increasingly understanding and rejoicing in the substitutionary death of Jesus for you, chapter two, verse two, that's an indicator of faith. If you're increasingly and humbly confessing your sins to God and to other people, chapter one, verse seven, that's a marker of genuine Christianity. Uh, If you're increasingly experiencing the joy and the ministry and the presence of the Holy Spirit, chapter three, verse 24, that's an evidence of spiritual birth. If someone is uh, sacrificially uh, loving their neighbor in word for sure, but uh, definitely in deed, if you're beginning to give your things away to people in need, that's the evidence of genuine Christianity. That's the fruit of faith. And so John is saying, focus on who Jesus is and every now and then look at your life to see if you're really resting in him, if you're really receiving him. Today's passage uh, is all about another indicator of genuine Christianity. Today's passage is all about another evidence of relationship with Jesus. That indicator, that evidence, that fruit is prayer. If someone never prays biblically, they're not a Christian. But if someone is praying more biblically, more, if someone's increasingly praying the way the Bible teaches, and if someone's praying more in that way, if they're praying more biblically, more, then they can feel confidence that they're a genuine believer. And so with this in mind and with this understanding of the whole and of the passage, I wanna ask the the text two questions. What is biblical prayer? And how can we pray more biblically more? So first, what is biblical prayer? If the quote, bona fide believer prays biblically or prays according to the teaching of the Bible, uh, what does biblical prayer look like? What do we need to look for in our lives. I wanna, I wanna share three truths from the text uh, that are repeated throughout scripture. Here it is. First, biblical prayer is astoundingly confident. Astoundingly confident. Look at verses 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, We know that we have, we possess, we hold the requests that we have asked of him. Now in a moment, we're gonna talk about the fact that biblical prayer includes humility. So when we say confidence, we don't mean pride. When we say confidence, we mean conviction, courage, and assertiveness. So Luke and his gospel includes three parables that Jesus created himself when teaching his disciples how to pray. In each of the three parables created by Jesus, Jesus emphasizes courage, confidence, and assertiveness. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus' disciples come to him and they, they ask him to teach them how to pray. And Jesus gives them a shortened version of the Lord's Prayer, which give, is given in its full version in Matthew. But then Jesus quickly turns to, to give them a parable. And he tells them about a man who goes and knocks on his neighbor's door at midnight. He tells them about a man who wakes his neighbor up and wakes up all of his neighbor's children. He tells them about a man who kept on begging for a loaf of bread over and over and over until he finally got it. And Jesus says, look, this is the point of the parable. Chapter 11, verse eight. I tell you, 
though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. The word impudence means persistence, assertiveness. At the core in the Greek, this means shamelessness. Guilt says you did something wrong to them. Shame says there's something wrong with you. In shame, our chin is down. In shamelessness, our chin is up. And we're confident that there's nothing wrong with us in the presence of God. In the same chapter of Luke's gospel, Jesus uh, encourages us when we pray to think of ourselves like hungry toddlers in the presence of their loving father, repeatedly asking for food. Just think about with me that hungry toddler whose parents you judged yesterday at the mall. Hungry children are assertive and bold and shameless and repetitive and demanding. And Jesus says, yep, that's the picture of confident prayer. It's not enough, though, because in Luke 18, Jesus tells the parable of a persistent widow. Jesus makes us almost think as if God is unjust to show us what biblical prayer looks like. There is this persistent widow who continually goes to an unjust judge demanding justice, and the judge says to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And of course, in explaining the parable, Jesus makes it very clear that God is not the unjust judge. And he said, I give you the parable to give you yet another picture of what I want in your prayer life. Luke writes this, he told them this parable to show them that they ought always to pray and never lose heart, never be discouraged, find courage in their prayer. So why is this confidence in prayer astounding? Imagine a staffer walking into the Oval Office, Oval Office with swag and swagger, expecting to have the president's utter attention the moment they start talking. Imagine the staffer saying to the president, president I know I'm going to possess what I seek, so I'm going to stay here until you give it to me. If that's astounding, how much more when a mere mortal, a sinful mere mortal, approaches the throne of the holy, eternal, infinite, almighty God, approaches the throne of the God who created all that is and holds everything together by the word of his mouth and says, I can have confidence when I come to you. I can have confidence that you're listening to me and I can have confidence that you're gonna give me what I ask. Listen again to verses 14 and 15 and this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Verse 15, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Biblical prayer is astoundingly confident. The second, biblical prayer is appropriately humble. Look back at verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have towards him. That if we ask anything, according to his will, he hears us. So the biblical prayer that is confident is the prayer prayed, quote, according to his will. 
If you ever listen to a sermon on 1 John 5, 15, and that's it, you're in the presence of a heretic. If all we have is verse 15, we might think that John is teaching that every confident request will be granted. All you lack is faith. Just build your faith and get more things. But if you look closely at the whole passage, John teaches the following. We're gonna have every request, verse 15b, that God hears, verse 15a, and the request that God hears, 14b, is the prayer prayed according to his will. So what does it mean? He writes, if we ask anything according to his will, if we ask anything corresponding to his will, if we ask anything with reference to his will, he hears us. What does that mean? To pray according to God's will is to pray prayers that correspond to his law and to pray prayers in submission to his plan. You see, the phrase will of God is sometimes clearly used in the Bible to talk about God's law. And the phrase will of God is sometimes clearly used in the Bible to talk about God's plan for the future. And then there are other instances in the Bible, like our passage this morning, where the will of God uh, is not defined in terms of which one the author's talking about. And usually in those instances, the author means both. Now, these two are not far from one another. God's law and God's future are coming closer and closer together. That in the future, God's law will be obeyed more and more. And so to pray prayers, in particular, to make requests according to God's will, is to pray a prayer that promotes his laws. To not pray prayers that violate his laws. And to pray prayers in keeping with his sovereign plan for your life. So to use John's vernacular, uh, the prayer for God to give us favor with our neighbor's spouse so that we may be intimate with them outside of marriage is not a prayer in accordance to his will. Therefore, it's a request he doesn't hear, verse 14b. And if he doesn't hear it, verse 15a, you can be sure that you won't have it from him, 15b. That's not to say that you can't make it uh, happen by the power of your flesh. That's not to say that the enemy of God might not grant you that request. But God won't. Another prayer that God doesn't, uh, quote, hear, end quote, is this. God, it's lawful to get married, and I want to marry person X. So I'm gonna keep knocking on this door until you give me person X. You see, marriage, presuming that the other person is single, presuming that they're a believer, presuming that they're of the opposite sex, marriage is in accordance with God's law. But marriage may not be in that person's life corresponding to God's plan, God's will for them. Now prayers, examples of prayers that God hears, verse 14, and always grants verse 15, would be something like this. Father, I'd love to get that role at that company, but not my will, your will be done. Father, if it be part of your plan for my life, I'd really enjoy being an architect. Uh, Father, if it's in accordance to your will, I'd love to be freed from this cancer in this life. You see, biblical prayer is astoundingly confident because it's appropriately humble. We're confident toward God when we humble ourselves before his law and before his plan. 
We walk with swag and swagger toward God, and we know God hears us. We know that we have what we request when we pray for God's laws to be obeyed more and more, and when we pray for God's plan to unfold. We can ask for anything and know that God will grant our request so long as our request follows the example of Jesus and surrenders our will to God's will. John is saying you can know that you already have every prayer prayed according to his will. So here's the question. What's the point? Right? Why pray? If you know the Bible well, you know that God has said, I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do. Why pray? Maybe even in our most cynical moments, why waste our time? I'm gonna give you three thoughts. Three thoughts that theologians have written entire books about. Three thoughts on why we pray. First, we pray because God tells us to. Because he commands it in scripture. Last night I was talking to my children confused about this passage and I was hoping maybe they've heard something in Sunday school that's gonna help us. So I presented this to them and I was like, help me with this sermon. I said, if the bottom line of and the overarching attitude of every prayer is, God, do what you were going to do, why do we pray? And my oldest children, none present here, the oldest there talking to me, uh, were utterly stunned and confused and unsure what to say. They joined me. But my six-year-old, with energy and clarity and the faith of a child, said, because he's the Lord. (laughs) Until you hear that, you don't need to hear anything else I'm gonna say in this section. Until you get to the point where you say, he's the Lord, that's why we pray, even though he's going to do what he's going to do, then we're wasting our time. The first reason why we pray is because God tells us to. But the second reason why we pray is because the prayers of mere mortals are the means by which the sovereign God accomplishes his plan. The prayers of mere mortals are the means by which God accomplishes his plans. In Mark chapter nine, the the disciples were unsuccessful in casting a demon out of a young boy. And after Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration and exercises the demon from the boy, uh, the disciples ask, why couldn't we do that? And Jesus said, oh, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And the implication, of course, is that the disciples didn't pray. And of course, theologians are gonna tell you that Jesus is being sarcastic. If you ever find yourself in the presence of someone demonized, certainly pray. There is no kind of demon that comes out apart from prayer. Jesus is saying, you didn't pray. And so think, It was God's will, it was God's desire, it was God's plan, it was God's heart to bring freedom to that boy. And the disciples missed out on the joy of being the means to that end because they didn't pray. God is going to accomplish his purposes. God is going to bring about his will. God is going to make his plan happen. And John's saying, why not pray more and more and enjoy being the means by which God gets his will done? When do you feel most alive? When you beg God for something and he does it. Why do we pray? Because God's gonna do it. Why not be the means to that end and enjoy the fullness of an incredible life? 
Uh, The last thought I have as to why we want to pray is this. Through prayer, we come to know God and we come to know the heart of God. Through prayer, we grow in our relationship and in our intimacy with God. Through prayer, God takes his heart and massages it into our heart. Through prayer, we lift our will up to God and God aligns our will with his. Our relationship with God deepens as we enter into his presence, as we pour out before him what it is that we want, as we make these requests known to him, and then as we remind him and we remind ourselves what we really want most is to have his loving, his gracious, his all-wise, and his all-powerful plan unfold. The reason we pray is because we want to know God. In James chapter one, James tells us to ask God for wisdom whenever we go through trials. So think. Trials, by definition, are circumstances in our lives that none of us want. Trials, by definition, are painful circumstances that we beg God to remove. And James says, hey, while you're sitting there in those circumstances having already asked God a hundred times to change them, why don't you ask God why you're there? Why don't you ask God what he's up to in those circumstances? James does not say, if you pray hard enough, God will deliver you from the trial. He says, if you'll ask, if anyone will ask, God, give me wisdom in this trial, God will do it. And James is saying, the point of prayer is not just to talk to God, but to hear from God and to understand his heart. To take your will and lift it up to him and say, make my will more like your will. When we experience the trial, two things can happen. We can become bitter or we can know God better. We can become cynical or we can become wise. All right, let's keep moving. Biblical prayer is astoundingly confident, appropriately humble, and third, often communal. Often communal. I don't know about you, but I know about me that my prayer life uh, can become very myopic at times. But when I go back to the Bible and when I read the Bible, I find that the Bible encourages me to move beyond myself in prayer. Look at verses 16 and 17. And if anyone wants to come up and explain this after I'm done reading it, please, by all means. Uh, just kidding. Verse six, remember last year the guy came in and yelled at me about the Christmas trees? That's why I decided to not say anybody can come up here and talk. <laughs> all right. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. All right, listen. There's a few things about uh, these two verses that are quite unclear. But what I don't want is to let these things that are unclear keep us from seeing what is very clear. John writes that there is a sin singular that leads to death. And John writes that there are sins, plural, that do not lead to death. 
John writes, I am not telling you to pray for the people who commit the sin that leads to death, but verse 16, if anyone sees his brother or sister committing a sin not leading to death, he should ask, and God will give him life. So most likely, John is telling his audience to not pray for the secessionists, to not pray for the defectors, to not pray for the, quote, Antichrist, chapter two, chapter four, who had left their gospel community. As you recall, there were people who had left this church who had denied Jesus, who were teaching that Jesus wasn't the Christ, who were teaching that Jesus didn't die on the cross to provide forgiveness for sins. And John is saying, probably, don't pray for those people. They've committed the sin, the sin, that leads to death. And while that part may be unclear to us, certainly it wasn't unclear to the original audience, but while that part may be unclear to us 1,900 years later, what is really clear? John is saying that when we see each other, believers committing sin, we should ask and God will give that believer life. John is saying that we have the ability in our prayers to bring the gracious blessing of God into the lives of other believers. John is saying it is God's will to bring more and more eternal life into the believer's life. It is God's will to bring more and more of Jesus's life into the believer's life. And he says, when you see other people sinning, it may be wise to talk to them, but it's always helpful to talk to God. Ask God to bless them with his grace, knowing that he will. This is one of those requests that is always in accordance with his will. The Bible tells us we have incredible power in one another's lives. The Bible says that until we confess our sins to one another and pray for one another, we will not be healed, talking about sin. The Bible says in Galatians 6, when one of us is caught in a sin, those who are spiritual, meaning those who know how to walk with the Spirit, meaning those who know how to pray, ought to bring restoration to that person's life. Jesus had four people visit him carrying a paraplegic on a mat, a quadriplegic on a mat, and it says that when Jesus saw their faith, he forgave the guy. The Bible says we have extraordinary power in one another's lives because God has willed to unleash his power in our life. Here's the bottom line. Biblical prayer is often communal. If we're engaging in biblical prayer, we will often move outside of ourselves and seek God's gracious work in the lives of others in our church family. Okay, so first, we wanted to ask the passage, what is biblical prayer? And we did that because we wanted to understand, uh, we did that because we understand that biblical prayer is an indicator of authentic Christianity. So we thought about what is prayer so that we could look at our lives and hopefully gain assurance in regards to our relationship with Jesus. We, we, we thought about those three markers so that we, in hopes, can see that evidence in our lives uh, that we're people of faith. But the second question we wanna ask this morning is how can we pray more biblically more? And I think the answer is obvious. As our faith in Jesus increases, our biblical praying will increase as well. So let's say that we just heard these markers of biblical faith, confidence, humility, and selflessness. Let's say that we, we just heard of these realities and we began to think about our prayer life and we don't see any of these markers in our prayer life. Maybe we don't see any prayer life at all. And we're thinking, what can I do? 
John says, first and foremost, do not keep looking at 14 through 17. Go back to verse 13. That we must start with faith in Jesus before we can expect to pray more biblically. Let's say that we thought about our prayer life and we do, we do see some sense of, uh, we, we see some resemblance of this type of prayer, but we want more. And John is saying to us, humble confidence in our prayer life increases as a byproduct of faith in Jesus. If it's not on the screen, we'll put it there now. We pray more when we remember that prayer is the fruit of faith in Jesus. Look at your passage. See with me. Verse 14, confident, humble prayer. Verse 14 flows from verse 13. Verse 13, believing in the name of Jesus, seeing that you hold eternal life. From this flows confident and humble prayer. In verse 14, John does not command anything. He doesn't say, get out there and pray with humility and confidence. He says, humble, confident prayer is yours when you believe in the name of Jesus and see that you already have eternal life. You see, there's a danger in preaching on the marks or the evidence or the indicators or the fruit of faith. Uh, when we preach on these, these indicators of faith, th this fruit of faith, we can begin to think more about and obsess more over and focus more on uh, the fruit than the faith. And whenever we focus on the fruit more than the faith, we cut off from the fruit the nutrients it needs by faith. Robert Murray McShane was a young Scottish theologian uh, in the early 1900s, and he famously said this, a quote that we've given multiple times at New City. For every look at self, take 10 looks at Christ. For every look at self, take 10 looks at Christ. Listen, it, it's utterly foolish to never inspect your life for fruit, but it's absolutely counterproductive to primarily obsess about fruit. McShane is saying, fix your eyes upon Jesus. And as you're studying Jesus, look in your peripheral vision at your own life. And see if you see in your peripheral vision the fruit of faith in that Christ. For every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Why is this? Uh, why does believing in Jesus produce confident, humble, selfless prayer? Why is this an absolute necessary byproduct of faith? What can make you more confident? What can raise your chin more than this? God sent his only son through hell so that he could adopt you and bring you into his family and take you into the new heavens and the new earth. What can make you more confident than that? I mean, further, the son, through agony and suffering, obeyed the father for the joy of spending eternity with you because he likes you that much. It says in Hebrews that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What's the joy set before him? You in the new heavens and the new earth forever. What will raise the chin faster than that? What is, as John says in the text, what will give us confidence towards him? What will give us confidence that moves us towards him? 
knowing that he broke into history to give us access to the Father through his death. That said, what will simultaneously make us more humble? What will make us want to say more and more, not my will, your will be done? What will produce in us a humility concurrent with the confidence? Well, seeing that our sin was so vulgar, so cataclysmic, and so catastrophic that nothing short of the death of God's perfect son could deal with it. Humility flows from the fact that God had to die to give me eternal life. Confidence flows from the fact that he did. What will lead us to pray selfless prayers for the gracious blessing of God on other sinners? What will get our eyes off of us, put our eyes on other people and pray for God's gracious blessing on them? Is it not Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? The night before his death, Jesus enters the garden to pray. And in that moment, God the judge gives Jesus a glimpse of the cup of wrath. The cup of wrath that Jesus has to consume and the cup of wrath that will consume Jesus. And Jesus begs over and over and over, please, 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 if there is any other way to save your children apart from me drinking this cup of wrath, please, please, please do it. But not my will, your will be done. And what is the Father's answer to Jesus? There is no other way. For them to have grace, you have to have wrath. For their sins to not lead to their death, you have to die the death their sins deserve. And then Jesus submits to the Father, walks through the night to the cross, and dies for us. That he had to drink that staggering cup of wrath for our sin humbles us. That he did lifts our chin. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the great high priest who has gone before us into the heavenly places and that in you we have access to the throne of grace and the author of Hebrews says that we should come with confidence. Jesus, we thank you that you did all things necessary to give us the status of sons and daughters, to give us the love of the Father, to give us the indwelling presence and ministry and friendship of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Jesus, that you're such a magnificent and gracious and brilliant Savior that we understand the most wise thing for us to do is to say your will be done and not ours. Would you help us, Holy Spirit, to learn how to cry out to God in prayer? Would you help us, Holy Spirit, to be confident in our requests? Would you help us to be humble all the while, asking that our will not trump yours? And would you help us to beg for wisdom in this relationship with the Father as we wait for your timing, your will, and your way? We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to live more like children, children of faith. In your name we pray.
Lord Jesus. Amen.